Good morning. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the Naval Institute. My co-host, Ward Carroll, is living the life of Riley today. He's on his way to Manhattan for a special preview of the movie Top Gun Maverick, which has been long awaited. And uh, Ward, as a naval aviator and as a uh, YouTube guy, YouTube star, uh, got a special invite to uh, a preview up there. I can't, to, I can't wait to hear his take uh, on Top Gun Maverick. We've, uh, we, we saw a, a special preview about two years ago, and uh, that, that movie has been delayed, of course, by COVID and is finally coming out uh, next month. So uh, it, it's upon us. Um, live today from the Pentagon, from the SecNav conference room, we've got the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Eric Smith, joining us. He, his article, Stand-In Forces, Adapt or Perish, appears in the April issue of Proceedings. General Smith, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, how are things in the Pentagon today, sir? Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. Well, they're, they're actually not that good because I'm not with Ward up watching the Top Gun uh preview because i've been watching the trailers for about two years so i'm uh, i'm a little disappointed that Ward didn't uh, didn't invite me to go with him but hey i won't take it personally that's okay me, me too sir like i'm his co-host and yeah it's it's uh yeah what, what, happened, to, what happened to the wingman there right yeah exactly hey so that's why he's going right you're goose and he's maverick he's left his wing <laughs> that's unfortunate for ward but we won't hold it against him but we will talk trash about him while he's not here 100 100 percent. well sir your article Again, for the, for the listeners and our readers, uh, stand-in forces adapt or perish in the April issue of Proceedings. Uh, it talks about a lot of the changes that are happening in the Marine Corps right now. It starts off with a little joke about change and how Marines view change. Uh, share that with us uh, just, just to get us started. Sure. Well, the, the joke is that in 1776, there was some land school that was complaining about how soft the Marine Corps had gotten since he enlisted in Tun Tavern in 1775. And that's it's a joke, but it's not a joke. So Marines are always talking about today's force is X, you know, compared to yesterday's force that was Y. You always hear that. But um, if you go out to recruit depots today or you go out to one of the battalions or one of the squadrons, hey, those are still gunfighters and they'll still stab you in the heart with a K-bar and they won't even blink an eye doing it. So the, the Marine Corps ethos is first to fight as a war fighting organization um, not afraid to go into the fray, um, that hasn't changed one bit. Uh, the fact that we're reorganizing to be best prepared for the next fight, so we're not, as usual, preparing for the last fight. Um, a lot of people don't like that, you know, because change is, change is hard. I've heard many a commandant say change is hard, change is tough, and they're right. Um, some people just don't like the changes you're making, but they know you got to change, and we, we have to change. So my boss, uh, Admiral Daly, had the CNO on uh, a maritime security dialogue yesterday uh, afternoon uh, from CSIS. And uh, the, the CNO uh, started his comments about essentially saying, and my boss kind of teed the question up this way, was, you know, the, the changes that the Navy is making in budget priority and in shipbuilding plan is kind of all seen through the lens of the, the pacing threat, which right now is China. And your article mentions China quite a bit. Uh, a lot of changes uh, happening and, and challenges from the Chinese military in the Western Pacific and the South China Sea. So how does the Marine Corps prioritize those challenges and what, what Chinese capabilities are of greatest concern to headquartered Marine Corps these days? Yeah, it's really an easy question. Um, we follow the law. Um, the 2018 NDS and the 2022 NDS, which 
uh, signed, but not public, obviously secret document. Um, both of those national defense strategies called China the pacing threat. And I noted that in the article. And it's, again, not a political statement, but you probably couldn't find um, uh, two more different, uh, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that, that two very different administrations both called China the pacing threat. And my own experiences uh, coming out of uh, 3MEF in Okinawa, Japan, um, tell me that you have to be ready for the China fight. Uh, there's a lot of people who will say, ah, we're never going to fight China. Well, that's not your risk to take. Um, the national defense strategy, which is signed by the SECDEF, who's appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, meaning constitutionally authorized to give that guidance, gave that guidance. So we're going to follow it. And I personally believe in it, having just come from there. And th folks who say we're never going to uh, trade paint with China, we're never going to get into a shooting war with China. That's an awful big bet for somebody to say when they're not going to have to fight that war if it does come. Our job is to be prepared to fight um, and to prevent a war. But if it does come, to fight it. And um, I would say a lot of folks didn't think we were going to Iraq or Afghanistan or that the Ukraine war uh, that Russia illegally started um, uh, is uh, was going to happen. So anyway, that's the national defense strategy. That's why we're going there. And my own personal experience tells me that we have to use China as the pacing threat, meaning they're the fastest runner. Whether I run against them or not, I hope I don't. Um, and, and they better hope we don't. But if we do, we need to be prepared for that fast runner. Well, the, the best way to avoid war is always to be prepared for it, because if you're not prepared for it, then you're your adversary takes advantage of your your lack of preparedness. Uh, that's that's a huge belief of mine. Yeah. Uh, so, sir, in the in the title of your article, you mentioned. I mean, it's stand-in forces, right? So, describe what that means for our listeners and our readers. What it, what are stand-in forces? Sure, and I'm I'm glad you asked because I think it's really simple. And I'm I'm I was born in Missouri, but I'm from Texas. I don't remember anything. Born there, moved to Texas as a as a little kid. So I will speak in plain Texan here. Stand-in forces are forces who are already there. They live and operate inside a weapons engagement zone of the adversary. And what that means is we have three regiments who are assigned to the Pacific. We have 12th Marines, 4th Marines, and 3rd Marines. They're there now. They're not leaving. So when the fight starts, those three regiments and those forces that are aligned to 3MEF, they're not going anywhere. They are the thing that enables pulsed operations, that enables the naval and joint forces to be able to enter and exit the weapons engagement zone. So they stand inside of the weapons engagement zone. They already do that. And I noted that in the article that they're already there. My son just left there. Um, they are just not currently organized, trained and equipped to do that as well as they need to do it to enable distributed maritime operations and the joint force. Um, and, I will say real quickly, that's what standing forces are. They live inside the West. That's their, that's their mission. Um, those three regiments, they're not going anywhere. They weren't going to go to a different war fight. Uh, they're focused there. And people will say, well, gosh, you know, those things are not survivable. Well, hell, we've been living inside a weapons engagement zone of a nuclear armed peer adversary called Russia for, I don't know, what, 75 years or more <clears throat> since the end of World War II, uh, living right on the other side of the border, U.S. troops in Germany, Poland. So I, I am... I, I cannot take that argument seriously that you're not survivable. Uh, it's damn hard to kill a Marine, uh, especially one that's armed with better equipment, 
lower signatures and better mobility. Uh, it is very, very hard to kill the U.S. Marine. And that's not false bravado. That's science and that's facts and that's experimentation and operational analysis. So uh, a lot of lot in the news lately about force design 2030. And, and you just mentioned, you know, that those stand in forces right now aren't as prepared or ready or equipped as they need to be right for that pacing threat. Not that they're not equipped and, and ready, but they're just there's more that needs to be done. Uh, so force design 2030, uh, you know, provides some goals and objectives and and changes to the force. Uh, can you describe some of those significant changes that are happening in the Marine Corps, uh, both in terms of, you know, uh, equipment, but also in uh, C2 capabilities and structures and concepts, uh, expeditionary advanced base operations being top of mind, for example? Sure. Well, let me start at the uh, at the end and work backwards. So EABO, uh, Expeditionary Advanced Space Operations, <clears throat> pardon me, our Title 10 responsibility. Uh, we are, in fact, there's two positions of the Congress, the 82nd and 112th, which say we are the crisis response force. We are the uh, most ready when the nation's least ready. And we we love doing that and we adhere to that and we we take that uh, that mantle with pride. Our Title X responsibility, uh, Title X, Section 5063, is to be a to, to secure or defend advanced naval bases and to conduct such land campaigns as may be required in the furtherance of a naval campaign. That's Title X. Uh, easy to find. You can Google it um, or Bing it or whichever one you want to use. But that's our Title X. So what we are focused on is to be able to further naval and now joint campaigns by by being a stand-in force and EABO seizing and defending of advanced naval bases, although for a very short period of time. I mean, that's our history. That's what we do. That's what our expertise is. And I would note that in 2019, before General Berger was the commandant, I was at 3MEF, um, a guy named Bams Brody, Colonel Bob Brody, uh, now one-star select, um, 31st Mew Commander, we were doing EABO preparation before the Commandant's planning guidance because you had to do it, right? Those in the Pacific said, you have to do this. So we were grabbing a hold of a small piece of terrain, quickly refueling F-35Bs, rearming them, and launching them again. We were using uh, Ospreys to move from Korea and Japan, long-range raids, seizing a quick piece of terrain, setting up some kind of a communications relay so we could pass to the Naval Force targeting data so they could launch uh, Missile X, Missile Y. So we've been doing EABO for, for quite a while, and it is required uh, for the future fight to be able to be sh uh, small, light, lethal, agile. Um, when, you, when you talk about the things that we're doing, the, the biggest thing is reorganization. <clears throat> what you cannot do is say, well, we're going to wait until the equipment arrives, the new gear. And once it gets here, then we're going to figure out how to use it, and we're going to reorganize as need be. You have to take some risk to reorganize yourself now so that when the new kit arrives, and the new kit is science, right? A uh, quick example, naval strike missile. We're firing a naval strike missile, uh, unclassified in excess of 100 miles, off the back of a robotic joint light tactical vehicle. It, it's not that hard. Um, the science behind it, not that hard. We'll fire whatever we need to fire off the back of that system. Um, also just science, not that hard. 
So I have a pretty good idea of when those capabilities arrive. What you can't do is wait for them to arrive and then reorganize. Because what you do is you then provide an adversary with time. If you are simultaneously reorganizing as new gears are coming, you're coughing up six, eight, 12 months to an adversary. When we got two COCOMs in a row, Indo-PACOM, both uh, Admiral Aquilino now, Admiral Davidson before saying, hey, by 2027, you better be at the start line. So you, you cannot, in one hand, say we need to look at the COCOMs, what they say. And in the other hand, say we're just going to wait. You, you can't do that. Uh, the threat, the adversary will take advantage of that. So the reorganization is critical. The equipment is, is not that complicated. Um, it can be expensive, unfortunately, but everything right now is expensive to include the Ford F-250 that I would like to buy. Um, <laughs> those are, but you know, that's what it costs, right? So um, long range strike is vital against a long range adversary. So we're shooting missiles that we'll just say are in excess of hundred nautical miles. And when I say in excess of, people should take note of what I said in excess of, I have no intent of, of, on an unclassified network saying how far, but it's in excess of hundred nautical miles. That's a key element is long range fires. The other one is sensing. We've got an MQ nine, a extended range, a Reaper. That's the, the platform, the air vehicle. It's, it's an air vehicle. What's on it is what's important to be able to sense what's going on out there make sense of it and then pass that data meaning hold targets at risk and pass that data to the joint force that is a key piece of what we're doing and we've made significant advancements we're using that platform now in a different theater that we're not going to discuss on the open class or on class net that we'll bring into the pacific um, the ability to sense make sense and pass targeting data is vital and for those who want to say well you know if marine's not pulling the trigger they're not of value I will let the artillery FOs know that they're of no value since they're not pulling the lanyard or the scout snipers or the Marine snipers spotter. I'll let them know they're of no longer of value. I mean, that's just a crazy argument to be able to pass data to somebody who's got a deeper magazine. That's that's as a grunt. I can tell you that's a smart thing because you never shoot your own, uh, your own equipment until you shoot somebody else's first. So those are, I think that's a, a kind of a once around the world, of, of what we're doing, a couple of specific systems, and I won't get into the command and control stuff uh, other than to say we have to be organized now. You, you have very short, unambiguous warning, meaning it's, it's happening. You need to move tonight, the fight tonight force. What you can't do is wait for that and say, gosh, you know, things are heating up. We should reorganize um, and task organize. We're, we're Marines. We always task organize. But we have to, for this threat, we have to live in a task-organized state that is ready to get on board organic mobility, L-class warships, C-130s, 53s, MV-22s, uh, light amphibious warships. We got to be ready to get on that in, a, in the command and control organization in which we will fight. We have to live in that command and control organization. We don't do that today. Hey, war's coming. We have weeks to prep. And we organize and then we go. Those days against a peer threat who has hypersonic weapon systems and ubiquitous ISR, um, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, you can't do that with a patient threat. Sorry for the long answer, but there's a lot wrapped up in that one. No, definitely, sir. And I'll key off of a couple of things you just said and also uh, 
some points that the CNO mentioned yesterday. So the CNO was talking about distributed maritime operations, uh, which is a, a huge tactical concept uh, for the Navy right now. The, the idea that we're not going to sail with concentrated strike groups that, that present a big target, but we're going to disaggregate and aggregate the fires. And the way you just described um, uh, EABO and some of those, like the naval strike missile capability, uh, fired from um, you know from ashore from uh, by Marines, it's, it tells me that the Marines are very much incorporated into that distributed maritime operations, the distributed fires with the Navy. And the the CNO said yesterday, I, I think this was one of the strongest points that he made was that the concept of operations in Sixth Fleet, for example, is is signed not only by the Sixth Fleet commander, but also by the MEF commander. Uh, and in, in you commanded three MEF, but he, he mentioned that out in uh, in Seventh Fleet, that it's a concept of operations that's not just Seventh Fleet's concept ops, but it's also a Seventh Fleet and three MEF uh, concept of operations. And so that, that gets to your point about, hey, you've got to be tied together, exercising together and ready to fight tonight with, you know, without the you know, six months of advance warning of, hey, how are we going to do this, right? Yeah. And Bill, I think the key is one, we, we are navally integrated at the MEF and fleet level. Third fleet, one MEF, seventh fleet, uh, three MEF, sixth fleet, two MEF. They, they are, in, in fact, integrated. I mean, don't don't let the, the knife fighting within the Pentagon for the last dollar between the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Space Force. Uh, don't that Nobody should be surprised that that happens, um, sadly, uh, living here in, in D.C., um, but at the fleet level, you know, the S2, Echelon 2 and below in Navy parlance, hey, they're, they are in fact tight because they depend on each other. Um, the, the Marines will be placed ashore. And not, you know, there, there's an argument out there that, hey, Marines are just going to be flung out on islands hoping a ship stumbles by. Okay, that's the most disingenuous thing I've ever heard. And one that's been very clearly explained repeatedly to some of the very individuals who make that claim. Um, Marines will be strategically placed using organic mobility at places where they can influence fleet maneuver. And those locations are worked out jointly between the Joint Force Commander, the, the Naval Component Commander, uh, the JIFMIC, the Joint Force Maritime Component Commander, the Fleet Commander, the MEF Commander. Hey, go here and with a range of X, you can either block uh, enemy mobility, which is sea denial, which is half of distributed maritime operations to enable the Navy to do sea control back here in the control area. Um, you can herd into a fire zone or a fire sack if you want to use a Russian term, which I don't. But if you want to herd an enemy fleet into a certain place where they can be struck, then you go here. So they're not hoping somebody stumbles by. They are, in fact, blocking, preventing. And that's exactly how we would do it ashore. What's different uh, in a land campaign? What's different is we're projecting fires from the shore out to the sea. And I would note, historically, uh, having been on the island of Guadalcanal for the 75th anniversary, that uh, Colonel Del Valle, when he was the CEO of 11th Marines working for a guy named Vandegrift, was shooting uh, at, didn't strike, but was uh, was challenging Japanese ships out in the slock, um, shooting from the shore. He went later on to be a general officer, but uh, Pedro Del Valle was doing this back in 43. So this is... Uh, also, not a new concept. All you got to do is read it. You want a new concept? Read an old book. Boss <laughs> has told me that. So you uh, you hinted at it a little bit there, sir. But our listeners are well aware of some of the pushback that 
that you know the commandant and force design 2030 have been getting um you know including from some retired senior marines right who have been writing about it uh, recently so how do you respond to those questions or critiques sure um having a debate is fine um going out and and, and having a having a discussion hey we don't agree with this and writing uh, writing scholarly articles is fine um but there's there's a couple things marines don't do we don't uh go after a sitting commandant. And here's the other thing that I'll just say without breathing a whole lot of life into it, because frankly, it doesn't have a lot. Um, if anyone thinks that General Berger took a uh, took a coach's whiteboard and sat in a dark room and built force design, they have no idea um, how it was actually built. So the commandant came in with an idea based on a national defense strategy. Uh, which was in draft then, but it's we knew what it was because we were working on the draft. That said, pacing threat is China. You got to be prepared. Um, the Indo-Pacific is the primacy theater, which we knew because we had been living there. General Berger was in uh, uh, one MEF and then uh, Fleet Reinforced Pacific, and I'd been in three MEF. So when the commandant said, "Here's the vision." a force that is most ready to deal with the threat we're required by law to be most ready to deal with. How do we do that? What's that look like? Pulled in a bunch of colonels, lieutenant colonels, general officers with a lot of combat time um, and said, how would I do that? Build me courses of action. So it's hundreds of lieutenant colonels, colonels, some master gunnies, uh, general officers built force design and said, sir, here's three options. You pick the option. Commandant said, I picked this one and let's move. And of course we've made modifications already because when you bring new data um, and facts based on experiments, um, then you adjust the plan. Like, like any good planner, you question your assumptions every single day. But so force design wasn't a single person idea. The commandant is in charge of it and he wrote the guidance for it. But it was built and constructed by literally hundreds of what I would consider uh, the Marine Corps' uh, best thinkers, most decorated uh, veterans. Um, and I, I, I think you're, you you got to be kind of mindful when you when you start dismissing things because the lieutenant colonels who are going to be the commandant, the commandant after next, after next, after next, eh, I don't think they're going to be too appreciative of the fact that uh, their uh, their ideas are being kind of dismissed. That's, I'll be just super candid. And again, I'm not going to get into a tit for tat uh, with, uh, with anyone who doesn't have access to, uh, to secret or frankly, most of it is top secret or sub gamma level. Uh, I'm not really interested in having that uh, debate in public. Yeah, thanks for your candor on that, sir. Um, one of the things we, we like to do in proceedings and on the podcast, when we have a senior officer write for us uh, or, or come on the show, um, it, it, this is really gets to the point of, of the open forum and generating ideas from people at the working level, from JOs and from, as you said, you know, the gunnies and the master guns. Um, it's always to ask, you know, what changes or what things are going well in your priorities and, and where do you need the most help? Right. So what's going well? You know, you got five, six priorities, three, four, whatever the number is. And, and no matter who you are in the world, some of those priorities are going well for you and some of them aren't. So to Force Design 2030, to, to where you're headed, um, give us a little bit of what's going great. What's uh, where do you need the help? 
Yeah, what I'm most excited about probably is, uh, as an infantryman is the infantry battalion reorganization. So here's a, a, a fact here. What we decided to do to reorganize the infantry battalion to be light, lethal, mobile, effective at long range, low signature. We, we took one battalion in each division and said, hey, um, go out and take a look at here's where you are now. About, about 890 uh, is your table of organization, your TO. Hey, go out and look at something much lower, uh, much being in like low 700s. Um, take a look at that for a year. Go out and experiment with that one battalion per division. And they're all coming back in and saying, mm, we probably need to be here. Now, that hasn't gone to the commandant yet. That'll We'll pull all that together. We'll take it to the commandant who every time you bring him data, he'll say, okay, the assumption was wrong. Let's go and move here. So we haven't even finished the experiment yet. But what we've found is, you know, we're going to need to adjust that and adjust that and adjust that. And they're all finding slightly different, but but on a trend line, I would say they're the same. So that's, again, pre-decisional. But but you got to know where the edge is, right? You, you got you to gotta quickly move and determine where is the edge. And you do that with field experiments. These aren't war games. These are, which war games are of great value, especially now using the tools that we have. Uh, you know, modeling and simulation tools have, have come a long way in the last 20 years. Um, but the, the experimentation in the field is telling us, I got real factual data, you probably should adjust. So I'm pretty excited about that. The lethality of the battalion the ability to sense, make sense, and call fires. And I can say this on an open net. We're working a system called organic precision fires mounted. Uh, just let's just say, picture a joint light tactical vehicle with, uh, with anti-tank missile systems on it. We're striking targets with a loitering munition, loitering munition. It's hard to say, it's, uh, it's like saying nuclear, uh, nuclear. Loitering munition at uh, almost 90, 90 kilometers. A tank on its best day kills another tank at about four kilometers. So four versus 90. So I'm pretty excited about that. And for 72 tons, you can bring a whole lot of uh, organic precision fires mounted. Those are not that technically difficult to bring. So I'm excited about that. Um, the long range fires piece, uh, naval strike missile, excited about that. The things that um, I think are going to be so that's that's the good. The things that I, I, I think where we need help still. Uh, oh, the other piece that I'm pretty excited about is the C2 relationships. Those those fight two day relationships are being built in the Maritime Ops Centers, the MOCs out in Fleet Marine Forces Pacific and in 3MEF uh, and 2MEF. And I'll just say this in 2MEF in the theater that is focused on the European theater or the MEF focused on the European theater. You got a UCOM commander in open testimony, General Walters, Todd Walters, uh, saying, hey, what they're doing, the Marine Corps, I, I need some of that now. We've got two MEF was forward doing uh, Operation Cold Response. But we have Marines who are, um, I'll be mindful here, who are who remain actively engaged in events in Europe right now using things like uh, our radar systems, our Gator radar, ground air task oriented radar, a phenomenal system that is doing far more than we had hoped it would ever do. Um, I'm also, I'm also uh, excited by the, the, field, the family of munitions that go on the HIMARS system, right? Because this is about mobility. You got to be fast. You got to be mobile. Because when there's a loitering drone, which is really easily obtainable by anyone now, floating around, the second you, you pop, right, a, a poo, a point of origin, a poo, 
as soon as that comes up and breaks somebody's radar, there's a drone up there. He's on you because he's using an AI algorithm that says, when you see this, kill it. You, you don't, an artillery unit, a well-oiled a well -oiled gun crew, uh, from the last time the lanyards pulled, mm, six minutes if they're really on fire. Six minutes, took the truck up, bring the trails in, and start moving. You don't have six minutes because there's loitering drones up there, very hard to see, that are ubiquitous. you got to be moving in a few seconds, and that's what a high-mars vehicle does, hence the term high-mobility artillery rocket system. So very excited about that. Where we need help. Um, I'm not going to get into the comms piece because I can't do it on this net. Um, how we're securing and passing data. Um, I'm, I'm confident in that. Uh, it needs to continue to be improved, but we made some pretty good improvements. Where we always have to work is logistics. That remains the, the pacing challenge is logistics. And I can shoot you from a long way away, but how do I sustain myself? That is a fair criticism that we have never, short of building the Iron Mountain, uh, which is not feasible against the patient threat. We need work on logistics. Um, that's where we need help. And I would ask the Marines that are watching and listening and anybody who's watching and listening, it's not about how do I get extra stuff other than lethality? How do I get extra stuff to the warfighter? How does the warfighter need less? The first way to break the, the uh, conundrum of logistics is need less. Produce your own power, produce your own water. That's half of your load right there. And then I'm only moving munitions, uh, pre-stage things using uh, 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 digital printing and uh, 3D printing. If you pre-stage high-end materials, and I'm talking high-end uh, metallurgy, you bring that stuff in and then you can bring your printer and you can print parts for high-end systems on site. You cut the logistics train and the supply chain down. And we've all seen what a supply chain disruption can do. So. That's where we could use some help is in the creative thinking for how do I need less? Sorry for the long answer, but again, there's a lot packed into these questions. No, and your your point about logistics uh, brings uh, up an article that's also in the April issue of Proceedings. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet, but it's called Marines Need a Few Good Mules, yep. which when we first saw it, uh, it probably came into us in, in the wintertime. And uh, I, we all were shaking our heads. And then we all thought, including our, our, our editorial board, well, this is this is pretty brilliant. So I, I don't know if you if you've had a chance to think about that, sir. But you know, is, is that is that plausible? Um, so well, let's talk about this. So when you're talking, uh, and I want to make sure I'm I am saying the same thing as you because there's there's two versions of a mule. Uh, you're talking the physical animal that you feed, right? Yes, right. Horse horse like four legged. Yes, yeah. right. Well, okay. I'm from Texas, and my dad. So I, so one, I'll tell you a joke in a minute. We use mules in Afghanistan. Um, didn't work out. That didn't work out very well because those particular mules were, were not strong. They weren't healthy. Right. Um, there's a great book called Sergeant Reckless. Um, in fact, there's a statue to Sergeant Reckless. My wife's a big fan of the book. Um, uh, we're, we're using a, a horse, Sergeant Reckless, to haul more munitions than just about anybody. So is there viability in that? Yes, there is. I would say the key to that is locally procured. One of the things you got to do is there's plenty of stuff to buy in the first island chain, food, water, gas, animals. Can you do it? Yes. You just got to make sure that you know um, the quality that you're getting and um, the amount they can carry. So is it is it a weight? It's one of the many solutions that reduces your footprint. 
your need to bring gas and bring vehicles. So is it viable? Absolutely. Here's the only thing I would say. Um, you know, I'm from Texas. My, my, we had a few horses uh, for a little bit when we lived in Missouri. And my dad told me, and I've heard other people say, you don't want to own something that eats while you're sleeping. <laughs> so, um, so I'm mindful of that, but you don't want to trade one logistics challenge for another. But is it, you can't, you can't uh, step on that kind of creativity. And uh, we used them in Afghanistan. We used them up in uh, Musa Kala, uh, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, a guy named Chris Dixon. And, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's one of the many things you can do to reduce your, uh, uh, your footprint. They've been used in the past. We yeah, still teach up at Bridgeport. We still teach how to pack out a mule up in the Cold Weather Training Center. Yeah, that, uh, that article has a lot of history from World War II, both in the Pacific and in, uh, and in the European theater, that is pretty eye-opening. When you when you look at the numbers, the sheer numbers of uh, of marine, or sorry, of mules that were used by the army and the marines uh, in World War II, and the amount of stuff that they were able to carry. Uh, but I also, when I when I first read it, I thought, you know, the amphibious ship commander was going to have to carry <laughs> mules on on board his ship for the first time is probably going to be shaking his head to say the least. So yeah, it, won't, it won't be the first time we have surprised our shipmates, but uh, but that's okay. They're pretty resilient. Uh, sir, we got a question from one of our audience members. Uh, Zach George says, is the U.S. Marine Corps using the Royal Marine Commando Force as a muse? Seems many force design concepts are mirrored, are mirrored off the commando model. Yeah. Hey, Zach, good, good question. And I would say the answer is no, but not as a muse. But um, we are, in fact, coordinating with them very closely. Um, we're doing some experimentation because they're going through a reorganization too. Remember the Royal Marines are, are somewhere around 6,000. So a significantly different problem set, but they also are, are looking at power projection, littoral maneuver. Um, we are working very closely with the British Royal Marines uh, here in Quantico, especially uh, to, to experiment and to learn from their experiments. Uh, we worked together out at 29 Palms. And there was a big kerfluffle some time ago that uh, kind of misreported that, uh, you know, Marines had surrendered to the Royal Marines. We, we were actually just, we had exchanged and we're on multiple teams. So uh, anyway, uh, don't, don't never let the truth get in the way of a good article. Um, we are working closely with them, but I wouldn't say we're using them as a muse, but yes, we are tightly coordinated uh, with them. Despite the whole burning of Washington, DC, we just found the British attache guilty of that, by the way, um, <laughs> and determined that he owes $134 trillion uh, for damages. Um, and then, but in all candor, uh, he, he then claimed that we owed him several billion more that, or trillion more than that for Ohio. So we're working through that with the British. Um, but we're tightly coordinated with them and several other allies, uh, the Norwegians among them for how do we jointly experiment and test. But that's a good question, Zach. Uh, sir, uh, Zach's question um, and, and your answer to it, but also earlier you mentioned that Force Design 2030 wasn't just the brainchild of General Berger, that it was the brainchild of literally hundreds of senior combat experienced Marines at, at multiple ranks. Um, and one of the questions uh, that I'd, I'd like you to get to is how, how do you test those uh, assumptions, right? So what's the, what's the role for you in, in exercises? in war games um, and, and is, uh, is the Marine Corps University and the Marine Corps Combat uh, Lab uh, working with the Naval War College and, and their, their uh, war gaming capabilities. How are you guys testing and refining 
those concepts and capabilities as you move forward. So we, we are absolutely tied in uh, to the Navy and the Joint Force. The Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, McWill, uh, led by uh, Major General Ben Watson down in Quantico, that is the center, right? Um, that was that was a, a brilliant idea back in the 90s to, to stand up the Warfighting Lab. We've just given them a lot more uh, authority and uh, and some more folks to to and some some money and technology. So they are completely tied in up in Newport and with others, uh, the other services. So first, you start with a concept. You actually do just use your strategic planners, your thinkers, who all have degrees in operational analysis, or they got an advanced degree from the School of Advanced Warfighting or SAMS, uh, School of Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth. First, they think. You look at the threat. You you. It's all based on the threat and based on intelligence. After you think and you develop a concept, then you go war game it. You use the very high-end tools that we have now to model and simulate, modeling and simulation. And you say, okay, weapon system X versus weapon system Y, your signature is going to be here. His ability to pick your signature up is here. You run that through a set of war games, and then you take it to the field and you test it. And that's what we're doing. So a war game is only the second step. Then you experiment with it, and then you go back and refine it, as we'll do with the infantry battalions. Uh, as I said, three are experimenting. I think the trend line is to go here. We'll then come back and we'll have one battalion who will be focused on experimenting and doing the final refinements of that. But I mean, that's how you do it. It's not it's not rocket science, um, but concept, war game, then experiment. Um, and, and it's usually years from a concept until you get to final refinement. You know, our tentative manual for landing operations was uh, was. Uh, almost a decade, if I've got my math right, from start to finish. Our tentative manual for uh, uh, expeditionary advanced, advanced base operations has been out there for a couple of years. Just like stand-in force concept, we'll now go experiment test. Um, fortunately, we've, we've done some of this before, back before force design even started. As I said, uh, Colonel, soon-to-be Brigadier General Brody, um, if confirmed, um, we'll, we started this back in 19 and before. So it, it does take some time, but time is the one thing we don't have against the peer adversary. So we are trying to move as quickly as we can while still adhering to concept, wargaming, experimentation, refinement. And we are still doing that, but we're just doing it as quickly as we can. Got it. Thanks, sir. Um, we got time for one more question. Uh, you know, everyone's paying attention to the war in Ukraine right now. You you mentioned that the Marines are, that you've got Marines that are involved there or assisting you know ukrainians and i'll say i won't say that i'll say there's marines that are supporting the combatant commander let's just support okay got it got it um uh but lessons uh for the marine corps uh lessons uh, that that are are salient to you and to headquarters right now uh as you look at your own changes and and direction and then you watch this hot war that's happening uh, and supporting the, as you said, the, the combatant commander, what are the most salient points that are kind of, you know, coming into your mind right now? Yeah, there's a few. One, combined arms is far more than rockets, machine guns, artillery, air. Combined arms must include cyber and operations in the information environment. I mean, because you're trying to achieve an effect. So you have to include space, cyber, and Ops in the info environment. President Zelensky has been masterful in the information environment to counter Russian uh, lies. And you have to include that in the concept of combined arms. Um, armor. 
you can kill tanks from a lot farther away than a tank can kill a tank using something else. I mean, so our decision to divest of tanks to me is reinforced um, by what I'm seeing in the Ukraine. Longer range fires are, are vital. Low signatures. If you are detected, you're probably going to be struck. If, if you don't mitigate that by one, a low signature to start with, two, building the ambient noise floor around you such that everything in your grid square looks like you. And so you, you hide in the noise. And three is mobility. Um, if you sit in a field and you line yourself up, pick an artillery battery or a command post, and it looks like a command post, you will not survive. You have to be disaggregated. You have to be small, lethal, mobile, and light to be able to move quickly and aggregate your fires. You have to do that. Um, that seems to be uh, proven time and again here in this war. And, and, and again, the war um, wrongfully started by Russia. We should always point that out, right? Every time you get it, uh, an opportunity to call out Russia for what, uh, what it is, which is, you know, uh, the aggressor here. <clears throat> you have to be able to aggregate, disaggregate, aggregate, but you're aggregating effects. We're not going to put 4,000 people in one spot. Um, you can, but again, with loitering munitions and a ubiquitous ISR network, that's frankly fairly cheap for almost any adversary to have. If you aggregate, you're going to be struck. I mean, that's what we're seeing in the Ukraine. And the Russians are finding that out the hard way. You can put a 4,000 uh, vehicle column on the road, but it's not going to end well for you. Um, those are the things we're learning. Logistically, logistics is hard for everybody. And that remains the pacing challenge, right? The pacing capability that we need is logistics. And that's where we're spending a significant amount of our time. But physics is physics. A gallon of gas still weighs almost seven pounds. A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. You still got to move it. So what's the answer? Don't need it. Um, need, need less of it, right? Need less of it or forage it. Again, there's no shortage in the first island chain of, of food and water. I mean, you're in the South China Sea, which, by the way, I like to point this out every time for our Chinese viewers. Uh, the South China Sea is simply a, a name uh, that it, geographically it is a sea south of China, not the sea owned by China. Uh, like to point that out because I'm sure everything that you say on this is transmitted back to other people who will probably twist the words around, but, but never hurts to say it. Right. Right. So your point about the sort of the democratization of ISR and how, uh, you know, any, almost any adversary these days has got, uh, the ability to see you and sense you on the battlefield. Uh, there's, you know, these uh, Turkish-made TB2 drones have have played a starring role in the, the, the conflict in Ukraine. And, um, you know, this is a, a big change from 10 years ago where it was only, you know, the most powerful nations that had things like, um, you know, Predator and Reaper and, and, you know, that kind of persistent ISR. And now it's, it's out there, not just the ISR part, but also the ability uh, to to strike from from that capability. So, uh, very good point that you got to be you got to be mobile. You got to move. You got you can't be concentrated because you're you're going to be seen and found and, and targeted. And the other thing, if I can, Bill, I know you're short on time, but the other thing would be what what we always relearn is that the the individual, right, the individual Marine, the individual Ukrainian soldier, if you're willing to die for your country, to die for a cause, the Constitution in our case you are again, incredibly hard to kill. Um, 
And, and that's what people don't count on is fighting for an ideal, not for a person. And that is still imbued in every single Marine that puts his or her footprints on the yellow foot or feet on the yellow footprints or every officer candidate that goes to Quantico. We're still teaching that. That hadn't changed. Not one bit. So uh, the Marines that are out there today, again, they'll stab you right in the heart with a K-bar if you challenge the Constitution and they won't even blink an eye. I mean, that's who we are. It's what we are. And uh, we're proud of it. That's who we recruit. That's who we train. And you cannot overvalue um, the individual Marine and our training uh, and education 2030, which is also the follow on to talent management 2030, which is hey, keep your more senior people. You know, those with experience, hey, keep them. God forbid you let somebody stay at Camp Pendleton for six years because they would like to stay there for six years. You know, um, you say, well, no, you got to move to Camp Lejeune and they get out. Again, we're not having a we're talking, but we're not going to give you everything you want. But we should at least ask, what will it take to keep you? That's talent management. Um, and the second part is better training, better education. We have systems now that when you light them off, use them in war mode, you're immediately picked up by somebody's collection means. So we have to use live virtual constructor training to hide what we're doing. And I'm being purposely evasive on a few things because everything is picked up. Um, and that's something that I think, unless you're in it today and you see the threat every single day that I see, um, you understand the capabilities of collection of our adversaries, you, you won't understand why we're investing in some of the tools we're investing in. Um, but talent management, just final point, is part of force design, which is you got You're spending a lot of money to on people. You got to keep them. We used to move you every three years. Why? Well, because Marine Corps does that. Well, I'm still giving you butt orders. You know, if I tell you, hey, you're, I'm going to say it on here because I think I can't. Hey, your ass is moving to Okinawa or you're moving to Lejeune, and I'm done negotiating. But before I start that, I'm going to say, hey, what would you like to do, Devil Dog? I'd like to stay at Lejeune for three more years. And if I can do that, and that Marine will stay for three more years, why wouldn't I do that? I mean, that's that seemed kind of crazy to me. But anyway. That's talent management um, and moving into training and education 2030, which is just a better way to do business uh, against a patient threat. Sorry for that uh, uh, free uh, pay advertisement about the three elements of force design, uh, organization, equipping, but talent management and um, training education. They're all kind of this uh, this trifecta that gets you to a force that's really ready against a pure threat and can handle all the other things because we didn't talk about news. Uh, the MAGTAF, we're still a MAGTAF, we still do MUSE, uh, we're still able to aggregate those forces if the high-end, uh, truly high-end conflict comes where we need to aggregate in a bigger sense than we would against uh, uh, a pacing threat. If we have to aggregate MUSE, we can still do that, um, but we're not focused on that because we can already do that. So, No, great points, especially the the personnel side, the 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 individual Marine is, is so important without the best people, you know, you can't win. So uh, yeah. getting, getting the best people in and training them well and educating them well, and then retaining the ones that you need to retain uh, is, is critical for any organization, especially, especially, you know, these days it's hard to retain people because there's a lot of jobs out there. right? Well, we, it's, it's hard to retain. And that's why we, we put in a, uh, we're using the, the authorities Congress gave us for lateral entry. And I think we're talking a few dozen people, but you know, if I got a guy who's a VP at, uh, at alphabet or Google, and we literally have those guys in reserves, but who's got 10 years experience uh, doing cyber and I bring him in, uh, he wants to be enlisted Marine. You're going to be a private. Wait a minute. I can't make him a corporal or I can't make this guy a captain or even a major. 
I mean, crap, we, we did brevet colonels in uh, World War II. So I'm not saying we're doing that across the board. And these aren't people that are wearing green hair either, by the way. It's a this is a cyber expert who wants to go to OCS first. And after he gets through OCS or she gets through OCS, I might commission you as a captain or a major because I need to pay you what you're worth. Um, or I cannot have you. I mean, you know, but they're still going to OCS, still going to boot camp. So anyway, that's uh, a little little misinformation campaign about that, too. But try to clear that up. Gotcha, sir. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. The show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, our members have been the foundation of everything we do. To become a member of the Naval Institute, go to usni.org forward slash join. Uh, General Smith, thank you again for writing for Proceedings to begin with and for your time today. Great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks to Admiral Daly. Y'all have a great day, and, uh, and I'll see you at the Top Gun uh, movie whenever you and I can afford tickets. Sounds good, sir. All right. Well, until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.